In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Good evening, everyone. Do you ever get hungry? Specifically, do you ever get any cravings? For me, it's Cape Cod potato chips and chocolate-covered almonds, among about a million other things. Right? Do you ever find yourself sexually attracted to someone? Do you ever find yourself envying the things that other people have or wishing you had more of certain things? Do you ever get angry when you're driving or snap at people? Do you ever get sad, find yourself down, sometimes inexplicably? Do you ever get depressed or tempted to despair and just kind of give up on the spiritual life, give up on life? Do you ever find yourself uh, taking credit for uh, the gifts that you have and the things that you've done? Do you find that you go through your day just relying completely on yourself and not even thinking about or turning to God or recognizing that he's the one who's ultimately in charge? If any, and if maybe even all of these apply to you, welcome to the human race. You are alive. Now, I've been a priest for uh, just over 28 years now, and I've become more and more convinced through this uh, rich experience that if there are two things that I need to share with and teach people, they are first, how to really pray, right? How to practice mental prayer and develop an intimate communion with your best friend Jesus through heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And the second thing is the discernment of spirits. That is understanding the sources of the different interior promptings that urge us to do good or evil and how to deal with them, specifically in dealing with the three enemies of our human nature, the world, that is those external influences on our interior life, the flesh, that is the passions within us, which I've just described, and the devil, those evil spirits who prompt us to do evil. Now I'm going to focus tonight and in a series of upcoming P3 talks on the passions, how to understand and how to deal with the passions within us, because all of us always are struggling with gluttony, lust, greed, anger, sadness, despair, vainglory, and pride. And these affect us, our interior dispositions, and can affect the choices that we make. So we need to learn better how to deal with them and what they are, where they come from. So as to better love God and love others, which ultimately, of course, is the goal of our entire lives and of everything that we want to do. And in doing so, I'm going to be following the teaching of the Desert Fathers. That is understanding dealing with the passions as dealing with seeking healing from wounds that we suffer as a result of our fallen human condition. Now tonight's going to be an introductory talk, and it's going to follow with talks that look at each of the passion in turn. Again, gluttony, lust, greed, anger, sadness, despair, vainglory, and pride. To understand how we got in this situation that is struggling so much with the passions, we first have to have a good understanding of Christian anthropology. Who is the human person? How are we made? Why do we deal with these things? We have to remember that in paradise, 
Man was created with an original justice and holiness. He had friendship with God. As the fathers of the desert like to describe, he had a, a holistic health. He was perfectly healthy and properly oriented in his person. Man was made in God's image. That is, he had intellect and he sought the truth and had true knowledge. He had a will. That is, he sought what was good and conformed his will to God's will in general. And he had an affect, appetites, passions that sought what was truly beautiful, that is, the creator. It was properly ordered to desire that ultimate beauty, which is God himself, the creator. So man was made in God's image, in his intellect, in his will, and his affect. And man also shared in God's likeness, that is, in his grace. He was united to God by sharing in his nature, sharing in God's love. But of course, through the fall, man deliberately rejected God through sin, and that sin was so profound that it affects all of humanity at its core. That original sin is passed on, as we know, by generation. And so the image of God in our human nature became wounded. Our intellect became imperfect. Now we have a lack of knowledge, and we don't always think straight and seek what is true. Our will has been weakened. We, don't, we often choose our own will. We are prompted to disobedience, and we suffer from concupiscence, an unruly desire to, to choose what is, what, is, what is evil. And our affect and passions became disordered. Rather than seeking the ultimate beauty of the Creator, we seek the beauty of created things, and we seek satisfaction in our sensible desires, again, in creatures rather than in the Creator. So the image of God in us has been wounded. Our intellect, will, and affect became disordered. And the likeness of God, of course, was lost. That grace, that friendship and union with God, his love in us. We are conceived and born in sin, without grace, without God's life in us. Now, the likeness, that grace, is recovered by baptism, right? The guilt of original sin is washed away. However, Alas, that original sin was so strong that the effects of original sin remain in us, even if the guilt of original sin is washed away by baptism. Specifically, concupiscence remains, that unruly desire to sin. Our passions are tempted to, and even inclined to, sin. In this fallen state, we are wounded, we are weak, we experience the flesh, that is the passions, as things that are at war with us, within us, as, as our enemies that we're constantly battling with and, and fighting with. But of course, also the world, those external influences on our interior lives are also experienced as enemies and the devils, of course, evil spirits who prompt us to do evil, also are experienced as our enemies. And the devils tag team with the passions, right? Because just as there's a passion of gluttony, there's a demon of gluttony. As there's the passion of lust within us, in the flesh, there's the demon of lust outside of us who torments us. Now that's the situation, alas, that we find ourselves in. That's how we're made. Now let's seek a better understanding of these passions within us so as to know better how to deal with them. We have to diagnose, as the fathers of the desert would say, again, they see a man as he was originally created in perfect holiness and in perfect health on every level. They see that the original sin wounds man and really brings him into a sickness at every level. 
And so the fathers of the desert talk about needing to diagnose the origins and the causes of our passions so as to know how to cure ourselves or be cured of the disease that afflicts us, that being, uh, being overcome by our passions. Tonight I'm going to be talking about, as I said as an introduction, talking about all the passions in general. And then in the individual talks that will be coming, I'll discuss each of the passions in particular, what each is and how to deal with each more specifically. It's important for us always to remember, and this is crucial for our spiritual lives, it's something I'm often teaching in the sacrament of penance, and it, become, it comes as a relief to many people as well. It's important for us always to remember that our passions are neutral in themselves. Right? Our feelings and passions are neutral in themselves. They're natural desires, natural movements. That's why the fathers of the desert don't call them the capital vices or the capital sins. They call them the, the thoughts, the thoughts, because the thoughts just surge within us, right? Or they're like suggestions that come to our minds. So they're not properly deadly sins or capital vices as they're often referred to. Their goodness or their evil depends on how we respond to those movements because they need to be governed by our reason and by our will. Our passions only become sinful when we freely choose to live them in an unloving, uncharitable way. Again, they're morally neutral in and of themselves. It's how we consent to them and what we do with them that makes them either a virtue or a vice. That's why it's possible to be tempted a thousand times a day and yet still not sin. And I know that can be incredibly frustrating, right? When our passions keep roiling and roiling within us. But unless we consent to them in a sinful way, even if they keep surging and popping up, that doesn't mean we're responsible for them, right? Our passions only become sinful when we indulge our self-love. Now, self-love is the opposite of charity, which is what we're seeking to grow in, that is love of God and love of neighbor. Self-love is the love of our fallen selves rather than God and others, right? Self, it's when our self becomes God and we love our fallen selves. It's the opposite of charity, as I say, which is love of God and neighbor, which is true love. Now remember always, never forget, sin is in the will, in the free consent Something is only sinful if you freely consent to it and say, that's wrong, I know it's wrong, what the heck, I'm going to go ahead and choose to do it anyway, right? Every random passion or thought or feeling that surges within you isn't sinful. It's what you do with it, with your will. Sin is in the will, in the free consent. Passions, our passions only become sinful. They only become perverted or disordered. They only really become vices, when we choose to change their fundamental purpose, their finality, their reason for existing. That is, rather than living passions as means to an end, because they're natural means within us, we seek to choose to live our passions as ends in and of themselves. Example, we'll be talking about next week, God willing, gluttony. The desire and appetite for food is the most natural and normal thing. It's, it's the first and most basic of the passions. You have to eat and drink to feed the machine and stay alive and survive, right? So the desire for food is natural, and its end, its purpose, is to, for us to foster our good health so we can do the work that God has given to do, us to do and to serve him. 
That desire for food only becomes sinful when we consent to it in a sinful way, and that is when it becomes, the food becomes the end in and of itself, and that becomes the focus, rather than choosing food as a means to a greater good, which is its ultimate purpose. Again, all the passions in us are neutral. They all have a natural and, in a sense, good orientation to them, but we experience them because of our fallen human nature as something at war within us. But whether they become virtuous or a vice depends on the use of our will. When we choose to live them according to their being the proper means to another end, then, they're, then they're, we live them as virtues. When we choose to focus on the passion itself, that's when it becomes a vice. You can find a brief summary of this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which again emphasizes the, the it talks about the morality of the passions, paragraph 762 to 774, 762, 1762 to 1774. Just in a couple of paragraphs there, it talks about how, again, the passions are morally neutral. They only become sinful or virtuous, depending on what we do with them. Now that's an understanding of the passions in general, and we'll understand each one more deeply in turn as we go through this series of talks. I'd now like to talk briefly about how to deal with them in general. And then again, I'll be talking about how to deal with them individually in turn. The first thing, of course, is the work, the power of Christ. He is the greatest divine physician. And we're going to talk first about all about what he does for us. Christ is clearly revealed in sacred scripture as the divine physician who shows compassion, forgiveness, healing, consolation, and who comes to save and heal the whole person, soul and body. Think of how many of Jesus' miracles are healing miracles because he comes to save and raise up the whole person. His name, Jesus, which of course is the Latin form of the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, means God saves. His whole purpose in coming, his name is his identity, his whole purpose in coming was to save us from every evil. And Jesus, as the Gospel of Matthew says, both casts out spirits and cures those who are ill. And the two go together because in dealing with both, in healing of both, he's manifesting his power. And that has the same meaning. It's the triumph of Jesus over every evil, over Satan, and it's the inauguration of his kingdom on earth, which is not yet fully accomplished and realized, but has been inaugurated and ushered in by his incarnation and by his coming. He comes to heal and save and raise up the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Christ is the divine physician, and he continues to work for us through his church. His disciples, his holy church, carries on his works of forgiveness, of healing, of exorcism. And it does so in three fundamental ways, through the church's teachings, passing on the teachings of Jesus. And these teachings are crucial because they teach us what is true about God, about his activity in our lives, about us, how we are made, as we just talked about the revelation of the human person in the Genesis story, created in justice and holiness, and then falling from that justice. Right? The teachings of the church in sacred scripture about the spiritual life help us have a proper understanding of who God is, what he does for us, who we are in his sight, what our nature is, and what we need from him. So Jesus continues to teach us and guide us through the teachings of his church. 
He also continues to pour out his forgiveness and his healing through the sacraments. Now we can talk about the sacraments being divided into categories of sacraments of initiation, sacraments of commitment, and sacraments of healing, especially being those of penance and the anointing of the sick. But ultimately, all the sacraments have been healing, beginning with baptism, which heals us from the guilt of original sin and makes us children of God, right? The sacraments bring us the healing of the Lord, help us to deal with those passions. So do sacramentals and other blessings, right? Every time we bless ourselves with holy water, it's a reminder of our baptism and we receive God's blessing. We dispose ourselves to open our hearts to his grace, right? Sacraments contain grace. They actually give us grace. They give us a share in God's life. They contain the grace they signify. Sacramentals, other holy objects, holy water, crucifixes, icons, these dispose us to open our hearts to receive God's grace and also help us in our battle against the passions. The ministry of priests, asking priests to bless us, to lay hands on us, to pray over us. We have sacred power despite our own weakness and sinfulness. So Jesus continues his mission among us He continues to do for us and bring us healing, compassion, forgiveness, and consolation through his teachings, through the sacraments and other blessings, and of course, through the disciplines that he has passed on through the church, through the obedience to our sacred pastors and to the church that we practice, submitting our will to the will of those in authority over us, including those spiritually in authority over us, and of course, penances. Remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus doesn't say, If you fast, if you pray, if you give alms, he says, when you fast, do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. When you give alms, do it this way. He presumes that we will understand that these penitential practices are a necessary part of our spiritual lives. So the work, the power of Christ comes first, what he does for us and continues to do for us through his church. But then there's also the work that we have to do as his subjects. We have to do our part to cooperate with divine healing, right? And there are a number of things that we can do. Remember, God doesn't impose his grace upon us. He proposes it. We have to to dispose ourselves, open our hearts, be docile and receptive to the gifts that he wants to give us and that we so much need and desire, especially those gifts of healing. And the first, of course, and greatest work of the subject of ours is, of course, conversion, right? To choose to want to change our lives. Now, even that conversion is inspired by grace, right? God's grace in us always works first, but we are free. We are absolutely free to cooperate with that grace or reject that grace. And the first grace that he calls us to is that grace of conversion, which is the basis of the spiritual life. And conversion, of course, is an ongoing lifetime task. We never get to a point. I mean, think of your favorite saint or saints. None of our favorite saints would ever have said, got it, done, reached perfect holiness, got nothing else to strive for, I'm perfectly, perfectly united to God, and I got nothing else to work on. Holiness, conversion has to happen throughout our lives as we become more and more converted, that is, grow more and more in love of God and neighbor and leave behind sin and any attachments that keep us from giving our hearts completely to God. So the first work of ours always is seeking conversion that ongoing change that makes us more loving people. But also, we continue to work to cooperate with the divine healing. There are four other main things that we can do. Prayer, fasting, growing in virtue, and having a spiritual guide. 
Prayer first. And that's working on the spiritual level, as it were, right? In prayer, we can fight the thoughts that are suggested by the world, the flesh, and the devil at specific moments when we're tempted by by those passions. And we should also follow the example of Jesus and use sacred scripture. You know who's really good at this? Are the evangelical Christians. They get tempted or there's something going on in their mind. They call upon a word, right? They call on a word, right? Catholics, since we don't read the word ever enough, we don't call upon the word. But we should be steeped in the word of God such that when we're tempted, we can call upon a word. And uh, who leads us by example? Jesus, always, right? What does he do when he's tempted by Satan in the desert? It is written. He, re- he, he answers the temptations of the evil one by quoting the word of God, scripture, and that's what confounds him, right? So prayer, prayer with the word of God, fighting those thoughts suggested by the world, the flesh, and the devil, using the word of the, the inspired word of God, but not just prayer by praying in the moments when we are tempted. What is crucial above all, as you know I'm always saying, is that mental prayer. When you spend a half an hour to an hour of quality time with your best friend Jesus every day, and you really develop the, the practice of mental prayer, and a, then you really are developing a sense of his presence and companionship with you, that intimate union with him. And then when you're tempted, you kind of easily turn away and say, you know, Jesus, I'm not going there. Jesus, I know this won't make me happy. Jesus, help me. Jesus, I trust in you. You have an easy familiarity with him, and you just kind of easily turn away from sin because you spent that quality time with him and you really are conscious of his presence with you. That's why I'm always saying that's the very heart of the spiritual life. So prayer, that is working on the spiritual level. But then also fasting, right? Working on the physical level, as it were. You, and the fasting with all the senses, right? And we've talked about this before, you may recall. Uh, fasting with all the senses, not just with the sense of taste, with, with food, although that is crucial and comes first, because as we'll see next week, The gluttony is the first of the passions and the gateway to all the passions. If you can't control your appetite for food, you're not going to have the strength of will to control your appetite for the other passions, right? So fasting from food, and by fasting we mean both fasting in terms of quantity and and, uh, giving things up in terms of quality, right? That is uh, abstaining. So fasting, abstaining, quantity and quality, right? but also other types of fasting with the senses, right? We can fast with all the senses, from sight, screen time, hearing, only quiet silence or sacred music. Uh, We can fast with all the senses. So we work on that spiritual level, especially with prayer. We work on the material or physical level with fasting. We work on growing in the virtues, the virtue of prudence, that is seeking to exercise right reason and to come up with the practical reasons to discern what is the true good and what is not, right? Remember the devil masquerades as an angel of light and he plays off those passions. Oh, that's okay. Follow that inclination. That's, that, that's, that feels good. That, go for it. Go ahead, and, go ahead and, and take that, right? Prudence helps us to discern the true good and choose the right practical means to attain it and helps guide our judgment of conscience. So growing in that virtue of prudence, growing in the virtue of fortitude, right? which is the strength of will and the firmness during difficulties to fight evil and to be constant in the pursuit of good. Prudence, fortitude, and, of course, temperance. That is moderating our affects, moderating our desires, moderating our passions, 
um, by providing balance in the use of material things and creatures and pleasures, right? Temperance with regard to food and drink and other things as well. These are the primary works that we have to fight the passions, prayer, fasting, developing the virtues, and having a spiritual father or a spiritual friend, a spiritual director with whom you can manifest these thoughts because the enemy of our human nature who tags teams with the passions, right? He likes things to be hidden. When we are open with a spiritual father, with a spiritual friend, and really manifest the thoughts and the things that are tormenting us and that we're really struggling with, then that person can help hold us accountable and can help us fight through and work through what we're dealing with. This is a quick summary about what the passions are, what their origin is, where they come from, and how to fight them. We'll be talking more about each of them in turn, and we'll find a way to really become healed and recovered from these spiritual illnesses that are a consequence of our fallen human nature. The fathers of the desert talk about healing on three levels, apatheia, theoreia, and practica, or practicos, right? Apathy, theory, and practice. What do they mean by apathy? Not apathy in terms of what we think, but apathy in the classical Greek sense, which is apathos, that is, that is not the passions, not passionate, right? That means being, as it were, removed from our passions. Now, again, if we're human persons with a body and we're alive, we will continue to experience these passions. And yet, when we learn the tricks for dealing with the passions, then we can reach a state of apathy, of being dispassionate, as it were, and truly govern them and be detached from them and not obsessed by them or suffer from them. From the first times we, we have an inkling of a passion, we know how to deal with it, how to address it, we know what word to say, we know what thing to do, and we just don't go there and we become dispassionate and removed from our passions. That impassibility, apatheia, leads to theoreia, or knowledge. The more we become detached from our passions, the more we grow in a proper spiritual understanding of things and have true knowledge of God and of his plan for us, of natural things and created things, but also and especially of supernatural things, right? Why? Because when we become slaves to our passions, I'm sure you've noticed this, our reasoning gets clouded, right? Why do people do all kinds of crazy, stupid things when they are seeking to indulge or go after a passion? Because they're not thinking with their minds, they're thinking with their appetites, right? When you become dispassionate, apathos, then you also become clearer in your knowledge of things of the world, but also of God. So you have not just that dispassionate nature, but you have theory, you have the true knowledge of who God is and what his plan is and who we are. And that ultimately leads to what is most important, that is practicos, right? That is charity, practical, spiritual love of God, of others, and of oneself in the right way. And that, of course, is manifested in our works. That is ultimately, right, our goal for everything in life, to be people of love, to grow in charity, to love God more and more and our neighbor more and more every day, leave behind sin and attachments, become dispassionate, and put God and others first in practical works of charity. This is going to be our goal as we talk about the passions, how to deal with the passions so that we can become dispassionate 
and so grow in our understand, better understanding of God and his plan for us and who we are, and ultimately to grow in love for God and for neighbor. That's ultimately what it's all about. So hopefully these upcoming talks on the different passions will offer you some concrete, practical guidelines on how to deal with these ordinary parts of our human nature and existence and how to offer it all ultimately up for God. Amen.